I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Can everyone hear me at the back okay? You guys are good? Okay, great. Matthew chapter 5. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 26, but I'm going to read for us from verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, just to give you the context. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can worship you this morning. Worship you through song. Worship you through hearing your scriptures read. Worshiping you through proclaiming the Apostles' Creed. And worshiping you through hearing your word proclaimed. And Lord, we acknowledge that we are fragile, broken, frail creatures. We are hard of hearing. Lord, we acknowledge that often our hearts and our minds are not as focused on you as they ought to be. And so we ask that by your Spirit, as we look to your Word now, give us an attentiveness. Give us a hungering to understand your Word and to then respond to it accordingly and appropriately as your people. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us humble hearts that would feed upon your word. Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would strengthen, encourage, convict, exhort us, rebuke us, and those who do not know Jesus, that even this day you would save them by the power of your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word. We pray that Jesus would be exalted here in our midst. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So last week we, um, we began a short series on the Sermon on the Mount. And 
If you remember last week, we, we actually covered the whole Sermon on the Mount, and I attempted to provide a bird's eye view of the entire sermon to help us see how it all fits together. Today and the coming weeks of July and August, we're going to look at specific portions of the sermon, specifically in relation to the idea of how disciples of Jesus, followers of Christ, ought to live while in the midst of Babylon. Now last week we saw that Jesus is calling us to live a virtuous, righteous, whole life that would lead to true human flourishing for both ourselves and for others. In the Beatitudes, Jesus paints a portrait of what true human flourishing looks like in light of the in light of living for the coming kingdom. And then the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, he unpacks for us this greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees that is required for his disciples. We saw that uh, specifically in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the remainder of the sermon is Jesus explaining and describing what this greater righteousness is, what it looks like. And we saw that we could break this greater righteousness into three different sections. The first is greater righteousness in regards to to God's law. And that we saw in chapter 5, verse 21 all the way to 48. This greater righteousness in relation to God's law. But then we also saw this greater righteousness in regards or in relation to piety or devotion towards God, God, that is chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. And then lastly, we saw this greater righteousness in relation to the world, chapter 6, verse 19, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12. And we saw last week that this righteousness that Jesus speaks of is what Pennington defines as whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. The righteous person, according to the Gospel of Matthew, is the whole person. The whole person who does not only do the will of God externally, but most importantly, from the heart. And so this whole series is a call to all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. It's a call for us to come out of Babylon and not participate in the sins of Babylon, but rather live according to this greater righteousness that Jesus paints in the Sermon on the Mount. That we would live whole, virtuous, flourishing lives even in the midst of Babylon. And so this morning we're going to tackle we're going to tackle the first example Jesus provides of this greater righteousness in relation to the law which is what he addresses here in verse 21 to 26 and it addresses the issue of anger. Now a few thoughts that will help us better understand what Jesus is doing and teaching here. In these six examples or illustrations that Jesus gives of this greater righteousness in chapter 5, right? So he lists anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, 
and love for your enemies. And in these six examples, you will see a similar structure. There are three parts in each illustration. The first is you have what you could call the Torah statement or the the law statement. And then you have, secondly, Jesus' explanation of the true intention of the law. And then thirdly, the practical application. So for example, look, look at verses 21 to 26. You can see this breakdown. Verse 21 is the Torah or law statement. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now we know that this comes from Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, right? This is the Torah statement. Then in verse 22, you have Jesus' explanation of the true intentions of the law. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then in verses 23 to 26, you have the practical application of what Jesus has just taught. And here he provides two examples, which we'll look at in time. So that's a simple way of breaking down what's going on in each example. Also, it's important to understand what Jesus isn't doing here. Jesus is not undermining God's law or presenting an antithetical alternative to God's revealed word in the Old Testament. His teaching is not in opposition to what God had formerly spoken in the Old Testament. Just going to let that pass by us for a second. His teaching is not in opposition to what God had formerly spoken in the Old Testament. Remember, just before this in verse 17, he says explicitly, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus brings the law to its completed end, which is found in him. So he's not undermining God's law. Secondly, He's not suggesting that the Old Testament was only concerned about external behavior, whereas he is concerned about the heart. There's not a single suggestion or idea within the Old Testament that God was only concerned about external behavior to the law, and that now in Jesus, it's the heart that matters. As Pennington says, the point of the Ten Commandments was never just do these things outwardly and don't worry about your hearts. No, no. The message through the entire Old Testament is God calling His people to pursue righteousness and to do it from pure, whole hearts. God has always been primarily concerned about the state of one's heart. That's why you have rebukes in the Old Testament from God, like, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So Jesus isn't introducing something new here. But he is correcting the thinking of many people at the time, and especially the thinking of the religious leaders at the time. Further, Jesus isn't suggesting that anger is as horrifying a sin as murder. This would be a mistake to conclude such a conclusion. In the same way, Jesus isn't suggesting that lust 
is equal to actual adultery. This isn't an equalizing of sin here, but rather a revealing of what truly matters before God. The kind of righteousness that Jesus requires of his people. So that's what he's not doing. So what is Jesus actually teaching and doing here? Well, here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's providing the proper interpretation of the law, which was often missed or suppressed by the religious leaders. He's capturing the true intentions of the law, that it's not simply about your external behavior, thou shall not murder, but the internal state of your heart before God. Or as Pennington puts it, Jesus is showing the deepest sense, the deepest sense and consummated reality of the commandment. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter by saying that the real issue underneath murder is not the act itself, as wrong and devastating and consequential as it is, but the heart or inner disposition of the moral agent. You see, the religious leaders, by reducing God's moral law to merely external behavior to that law, allowed for them to convince themselves that they had been keeping the law. It was a means of self-justification. But Jesus confronts this and demonstrates the fullness of what thou shalt not murder actually means. You see, the the Pharisees loved, they loved to reduce the letter of the law. They loved to reduce the law to the letter of the law. But Jesus here reveals the true nature of the law and what God actually requires. See, here's what Jesus is really getting at. You may have never murdered anyone, and yet you still may have the same heart that a murderer has if the anger that produces murder resides in your heart. You may have the exact same heart as a murderer simply because of the anger that resides in your heart. The anger that resided in Cain's heart to kill his own brother is the same anger that resides in all our hearts, even if we don't murder. See, what Jesus wants us to see is how horrifying not just murder is, but the sin of anger that so easily resides in our hearts, that has the power to produce the kind of external behavior like that of murder. He's getting to the root of the issue. And here he captures the severity of anger by giving a threefold series of images in regards to the consequences of anger. He says, right, he says, you heard that it was said that if you murder, you'll be liable to judgment. But let me tell you this. Verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, that is, mocks and belittles his brother, will be liable to the council or to the court. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus uses these three images to capture 
just how much God cares about something more than just the mere act of murder, but rather the state of one's heart when it comes to the sin of anger. Being angry, insulting a brother or sister, are seen as the main underlying issues of the heart, and judgment, court, and hell are meant to be seen as the consequences. The consequences are to demonstrate how powerful and serious this sin issue is. In other words, don't think you're safe because you simply haven't murdered anyone. If your heart is angry towards another person, if you have insulted, belittled, mocked, spoken out of anger towards another, you also are liable to judgment. See, there is a way for us to convince ourselves that we're all right because we haven't committed such awful crimes like that of murder. We're able to convince ourselves that we're living morally upright lives if we haven't behaved contrary to God's moral law. But if we look into our souls, will we discover a heart that is aligned with God's moral law. Our Lord never simply speaks to external behavior. He always addresses the heart. Why did He command the rich young ruler to sell all that he had? Because in doing so, it revealed the true state of the man's heart. He loved his money more than God. Jesus and the Scriptures as a whole do not merely talk about murder, robbery, drunkenness, and other particular sins. They also condemn evil thoughts, strife, enmity, which we often do not regard as foul and terrible sins. But yet it's these sins that in many ways reveal the state of one's heart. See, we may not have murdered anyone, but have we not murdered others in our minds? Have we not meditated and pondered evil thoughts against others which are as despicable as murder? See, here are are some important questions for us to ask ourselves. How do you react to things that happen? Do you find yourself with rage and a temper and even bitterness when a person has done something to you or wronged you? We have to be willing to face ourselves in the mirror. If we want to have the righteousness that is greater than that of the Pharisees, we must be willing to face and address our hearts, not merely fix our external behavior. If we want to be whole and flourish in this life as Jesus desires for us, then it's not enough to clean up the outside while neglecting the inside. See, it's easier when we can reduce godliness down to mere external acts. It's far harder when we include the entirety of the person. See, I don't think we truly grasp just how serious anger and insulting a brother or sister in the Lord is, according to Jesus. We downplay the seriousness of such a sin, but it's anger. It's anger that's the seed for all kinds of other sins like that of murder and disunity. In fact, it was anger that produced the first murder, which Peter read for us. God isn't just concerned about the fruit of our behavior, but the seed that produces the fruit. 
Now in verses 23 to 26, I think Jesus here gives us his application of what he's trying to convey by giving us two examples. And in so doing, he captures for us, one, just how important it is for us to deal with our anger, the importance of dealing with our anger, especially in relation to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And then secondly, he conveys for us the urgency by which we ought to deal with our anger. So he provides two different scenarios. The first scenario is concerned about relationships within the church. The second scenario is more general, but it's still very applicable to what Jesus is speaking to. So first, the importance of dealing with our anger as disciples of Jesus Christ, seeking to live righteous whole lives. Look at verse 23. This is the importance. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is, of course, using cultural examples to get his point across, but the picture is quite clear. He's talking about coming to the temple for worship where one would offer his gift of sacrifice, and in so doing, this sacrifice was a means by which one would be reconciled to God and, and know the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is saying that if you come to the altar where forgiveness, in a sense, take, takes place between you and God, while there is anger and conflict between you and another brother or sister, stop what you're doing. Leave the gift before the altar and go. Before you come to worship God, the God who has forgiven you and has reconciled with you, you better go reconcile with your brother or sister. And after you've done that, then come and offer your gift on the altar to the Lord. If we were to place this within the new covenant, I think it would look something like this. If you're coming to worship on Sunday morning, or to the Lord's table to eat of the body and blood of Jesus, this table of forgiveness and reconciliation, and you know that your brother or sister has something against you or you have something against them, don't come to this table until you truly attempt to reconcile with your brother or sister, to truly deal with the anger and conflict that you have with another brother or sister. See, this, I think, captures so powerfully how important it is to deal with our anger, especially towards our brother or sister in the Lord. See, what is it that Jesus is really conveying here about anger and reconciliation with a brother or sister in the Lord? Well, here's what I think he's conveying. If you think that you can offer acceptable worship to God while remaining angry and unreconciled with a brother or sister, you are greatly mistaken. If you think you can offer acceptable worship to God while remaining angry and unreconciled with a brother or sister, you are greatly mistaken. 
See, God cares so deeply about our interpersonal relationships that he's willing to disrupt his relationship with us in order that our interpersonal relationships are cared for. He's telling us to postpone our worship for the sake of reconciliation. How dare we take from the table of forgiveness while we remain angry and bitter towards a fellow brother or sister in the Lord. There's a kind of spirituality that is a stench in the nostrils of God. And that spirituality is the belief that one can be in right relationship with God while having anger and bitterness towards a fellow believer or even his people. There's a reason why John says in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must, must also love his brother. How can we hold on to anger and refuse to reconcile with a brother or sister when Jesus reconciled with us when we were completely unworthy of his forgiveness? And so let me be very direct this morning. If you are angry at a fellow brother or sister, or if you know that a fellow brother or sister is angry with you, go and be reconciled to each other. Lay down your anger and your bitterness and allow forgiveness and mercy to restore you both in the same way that God's mercy and forgiveness restored you. Now you might say, but Peter, you don't understand what this person is like and how they treated me. Well, let me say this to you. You don't know what you're like. Imagine if Jesus said the same thing about you. If you want to live the virtuous, righteous life that Jesus expects and wants for his disciples then be reconciled to one another. Here we see the importance of dealing with our anger, especially within the context of the church. The second illustration Jesus provides speaks to the urgency of dealing with our anger and reconciliation because of the consequences that may result. Look at verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, this illustration on the surface doesn't really seem to fit. But if you look closely, it does in fact fit with what Jesus is speaking to. Remember, he's addressing interpersonal conflict and judgment, and this illustration captures this. But notice the urgency by which one ought to be reconciled. Come to terms quickly. Because if you don't, there's real possibility for serious consequences. There's real judgment. 
In the context, he's using the imagery of the legal courts. But the idea is, if you don't deal with your anger, there will be serious consequences because you will leave a path of destruction and there will be destruction, even possible eternal destruction. We actually see throughout the scriptures just how damaging anger can be in our lives, but also in the church. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1-8, Paul actually tells us that there was such anger and conflict between believers in the Corinthian church that they were actually taking each other to court. Can you imagine that? This is what Paul says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law, that is to court, before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That is, they were going to the pagan Gentile courts. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such case cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why do you go to the secular courts? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not, and here's a good suggestion, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, yes, even by your own brother or sister in the Lord? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This is what can happen when anger dwells within the heart of an individual. I can tell you a story with my father-in-law, with a specific man in the church in the Philippines who actually put a hit out on him. This is what anger does. Anger has the power to tear down a whole church. Anger will destroy our witness to an unbelieving world. And anger has the power to destroy your soul. And this is why there is an urgency to deal with it. Now you may be thinking or realizing this morning that you're an angry person. And you may be wondering, where do I begin in dealing and addressing my anger? Well, let me say a few things to this. And I'm specifically here speaking to someone who is already saved by the blood of Jesus. You are a Christian. You love Jesus. Dealing with your anger is not something that will happen overnight. It may, but most likely not. It will not be easy. It will require wrestling with God, and it will also require you to address the reasons for why you're angry, which usually always involves people. So where to begin? Well, let me give you two things. Two places to begin in helping you overcome anger in your life so that you would become the virtuous whole person that Jesus desires for you. The first place to begin is with repentance. We must begin with repentance. 
Remember, just before Jesus proclaims the Sermon on the Mount, he announces in Matthew 4, 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance, sorrow over sin, and a turning away from sin is the beginning step in becoming the virtuous, flourishing, whole Christian that Christ requires of his people. Just as water is vital for the well-being of the body, so continual repentance is vital for the flourishing of our hearts before God and others. Repentance is the beginning step and the continual step by which we deal with the sin in our lives as followers of Jesus who are redeemed by His blood. That's why we usually always have a confession of sin in our services. The second place to begin is to do exactly what Jesus says here. If you want to deal with your anger, you must go and pursue reconciliation. And the reason is this. Anger is always directed at someone. And one of the reasons why people are angry is because they haven't sought to reconcile with the person they're angry with or with the person that's angry with them. See, Jesus doesn't simply say here that we must avoid negative thoughts and feelings towards others. He doesn't say, well, you know what, that person that frustrates you, you just need to keep a distance. No, no. He also suggests, actually he exhorts us, he commands us that we ought to pursue positive steps to put ourselves right with our fellow brother or sister. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, We must not only repress these unkind and unworthy thoughts, says Christ. We have to do more than that. We must actually take steps to remove the cause of the trouble. We must aim at a positive goal. We have to reach the stage in which there shall be nothing wrong, even in spirit, between our brother and ourselves. And that is not easy work. You see, Jesus is actually partly telling us how we deal with our anger, and that is we make it our aim to reconcile with those who have wronged us or with those we have wronged. And of course, of course, we need the help of the Spirit and the grace of God, but as followers of Jesus, this is what we're called to. And I want you to notice something significant with Jesus' words. Notice that he doesn't say in verse 23, if you're angry with your brother, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say if you're angry with your brother. No, he says if your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. If you know that your brother or sister is angry at you, you ought to go out of your way to reconcile with the one who holds something against you. Now you would think it would be the responsibility of the one who actually has something against you to come to you. But that's not what Jesus says. Now let me be clear. If you do have something against someone, you ought to go and reconcile. There is other scripture to demonstrate this. But Jesus also says to us, it's also our responsibility to seek reconciliation with someone who may have something against us, even if they haven't sought to reconcile with us. 
And here's why. Because that reflects who Jesus is and what He has done for us in the Gospel. You see, Jesus didn't come into this world seeking to reconcile with us because we first sought to reconcile with Him. He came into this world, died for our sins, and sought to reconcile with us while we remained hostile and in rebellion towards Him. And therefore, as disciples of Jesus, it should be our aim to lay down our anger, to lay down our pride, and go out of our way to reconcile with those who have wronged us, but also to reconcile with those who have something against us. Repentance and reconciliation are the place to begin in addressing the anger in your heart. Now, I want to I end off by asking, why is this applicable? Why is this important for living as Christians in the midst of Babylon? And the answer is quite simply put. Babylon is an angry place. Our culture, our society, is an angry society. From the internet to politics, Babylon is angry. Our culture is angry. And if we're not careful as Christians, the anger of Babylon can rub off on us. And the anger of Babylon can even invade the church. And though we may not murder, our hearts may be full of anger towards people we interact with on the internet, towards politicians we think are corrupt, and even towards our fellow brothers and sisters who may disagree with us over other things like politics or other issues that are thriving in Babylon. And this ought not be so among us. Now you might be wondering, but, but is there not a righteous anger? Well, there is such thing as a righteous anger. The Bible does speak about a kind of anger that isn't always sin. God Himself demonstrates this. Jesus Himself demonstrates uh, this. But let us be careful in thinking that our anger is primarily righteous. In fact, I would suggest that we ought to assume it's not righteous most of the time. And I have good scriptural precedent for it. James 1, 19-20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Here's why. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of God produces the righteousness of God, but not the anger of man. See, how can we offer to those living in Babylon a Savior who is the source of all love and forgiveness, a Savior who brings peace and everlasting joy, a Savior who is gentle and lowly while His redeemed people appear to be full of anger. The last two years, I think, revealed that there's a lot of angry Christians and dare I say, even angry pastors no matter what position you took in the last two years. But the kingdom of God 
is not meant to be a place of anger. As Paul tells us in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's not justify our anger by using the minimal examples of Jesus expressing anger as though somehow our anger is as pure as Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit doesn't include anger, nor does it even include righteous anger. Here's what it includes. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. All of these virtues are contrary to anger, and this is why in Colossians 3, where Paul instructs us to put to death and put away what is earthly in us, he says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put it away. Spurgeon said, Fighting sheep are strange animals. That is, sheep don't fight. And fighting Christians are self-evident contradictions. Brothers and sisters, Jesus in His sermon here is calling us to live as true disciples in accordance with His ways. He's calling us to have a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees, and that righteousness requires us to redress our hearts, not just our external behavior. And the first thing he brings to our attention is the sin of anger. To live the virtuous, whole, flourishing life that Jesus invites us into in the midst of Babylon, it means we must address the sin of anger in our lives and by the Spirit of God and the grace of God become the joy-filled, gentle, forgiving people that Jesus requires of His disciples. We must become more like Jesus. May God help us to do so. Let's pray. Father, we simply ask that by Your Spirit, You would help us to be gentle and kind. And I pray for anyone here this morning, Lord, who is truly angry and they know that they need to deal with their anger. I pray that you would give them the strength and the courage to go and to deal with their anger, to seek and be reconciled to the one they are angry with. I pray, Lord, that there would not be an angry spirit within our local church, but one of love and kindness a love that covers a multitude of sins, a love that bears one another. Give us that kind of love, the love that Christ has for His people. We pray this in His name. Amen.